0: If you have your Bible there with you this morning, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll be reading from chapter 13. I am reading from the Christian Standard Bible, regardless of what Phil Johnson says. I enjoy it. And uh, I'll begin in verse 1, and we're just going to read down to verse 19. I'll read it to you. You can follow along in your own Bible, and then we'll have a look at this morning's passage. Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated, as though yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honoured by all and the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. For what can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited by them. We have an altar which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have the right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that continually confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honourably in everything. And I urge you all the more to pray that I might be restored to you very soon. Amen. Amen. In the book of Hebrews, we see a pastor really speaking. It's not really a letter. It's a recorded sermon. It's the message of a pastor speaking to his congregation. And it's thought that it was written at a time when the Jewish Christians were being persecuted by the non-Jewish Christians. Think of when the Apostle Paul was called Saul and he went around persecuting the Christians among the the Jews, imprisoning some, ultimately ending with the stoning of Stephen. It's around that time. We don't know who wrote it, but we know who inspired it, the Holy Spirit. And the writer goes through... uh, (coughs) The, the temple worship, what was happening was the Christians were beginning to waver in their faith, beginning to compromise and quieten down their faith and add to Jesus. They were putting stuff, it was Jesus, but we behave in the old fashion. We still offer up sacrifices for sin. We still go to the temple to worship him. And they were tied to the old system. And here in this epistle, in this sermon that we call a letter, he reaches out and he's encouraging them and strengthening them and telling them why they shouldn't behave in the fashion of the old faith. Why they shouldn't go back, but rather continue to move forward in their faith. Not being tied to a system of rituals and ceremonies. But rather having true and real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is so far better than anything else. And he ends that portion with the great examples of faith. Remember from Hebrews 11, when he he tells of all the, the heroes of the faith. And he shows them that it was by faith, not by ceremony or ritual or by practice. Not by our human efforts getting 10 out of 10 on our tests but rather by trusting in God and his efforts through Christ that a person was justified and accepted by God and was reconciled and had their sins forgiven. And Here in chapter 13, he's, a de- he's dealing with the problem of how do Christians worship? How do Christians worship? You know, in our day, we think of worship as love song, don't we? Oh, na, 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 na. All that kind of stuff. When I first started my journey in Christian work, I was a, a a love song person. I know it's hard to believe. You think that people are nice looking and tall, with good hair. I was small and had hair, but maybe not the rest. And I, I, I would stand in the front and I'd have the, the microphone with the band around me and I, we would sing and I would perform in front of church. <coughs> And we would all lift up our hands and we would sway to the music and we would worship. But really, is that what God requires of us? Is that the height of worship? Beloved, no. In the Old Testament, the Jews, the Christian Jews, they came out of a culture of ceremony and sacrifice. You worship God by giving your sacrifice an animal or a bag of wheat or barley some oil perhaps, you gave something, there was a physical gift that you gave to the temple and the appointed representative, the priests, would take your gift and if it was an animal, like if it was a dog, they would, they would break its neck and rip it open and they would put it on the altar and they would burn it up. If it was a goat or a sheep, they would cut its throat, drain its blood, butcher it, offer up the... Certain parts of it, and then keep other parts of it, and that was your act of worship. Or you would gather together with family and friends uh, and have a ritualistic meal, some like a Passover meal for for you and me. Think of like midsummer or Christmas time, you or or um, something like that. Some appointed feasts, when the family would gather together and they would share a meal and it would be very religious. They would sing psalms and they would have that. And that was the extent of their worship. It was very legalized, very ordered, very subscribed, prescribed, written down. But when the Christians, the Jewish people became Christians and they no longer had to offer up sacrifices for sin, they no longer had to Kill an animal as a representative of their sins needing to be washed away because Jesus was their sacrifice. He had taken their sins and he had cleansed them once and for all. And they didn't need to have their sins cleansed again because Jesus Christ had died one time for all and they cleansed them from their sins. So all of a sudden, when time for your whole family, your whole select, gather together to go up to the temple to offer up sacrifices... For one and all. The Christians are left saying, I I don't need to go up. My sins are forgiven. Christ has died for me. I no longer need to participate in this. And the rest of the family were like, what? You can imagine mum saying, you're embarrassing me. Just do it. Just do it. You're embarrassing me. Just get on with it. We can kind of imagine the difficulty there, can't we? Those of us who have stepped away from infant baptism and the, the whole pressure... Of us having not to baptise our children. And then our family, our, 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 our relatives around us saying, well, why don't you just do it? Even the, the non-believing ones, why don't you just do it? It's just, a, it's just a custom. It's just a social thing. It's what you do. How will they feel when they are teenagers and all their friends are being confirmed and they're not? Well, we, we don't believe a person comes to faith through baptism. Therefore, we we don't do that. So we we kind of know of the pressure. So we draw back. And the Christians of their time were going through this. And here in chapter 13, he's dealing with the problem of how do you use a Christian worship? Is it singing? I love to sing. Not very good. Sound like a crow or a raven, a corp, you know. But that's fine. It's not how we sing as our worship. It's not the, the nice smiley thing. It's how we live our lives. And here in chapter 13, he is finally dealing with it. In the first part, in verses 1 to 3, he deals with how we worship God in our social life, in our social behavior. First and foremost, by show, you worship God by showing hospitality. Isn't that a crazy revolutionary thought? By being open, by giving of yourself, by not being closed. And the idea here is it's uh, the love of strangers. So is it Philo Xenia or Zinia Philo? I can't remember what it's called. The love of strangers, of people that you don't know, that you are caring. You show care to people who are not of your core group. Remember Jesus said, love your enemies. Because what profit is it to you if you just love the people who love you? But be be bigger than that. And so uh, in our first act of worship as a church and as individuals of the church, we are to show hospitality, to be loving people who are open to giving of themselves and giving the love of Christ to strangers. And then it goes on, verse 3 Remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. In the olden days, when a person went to prison, the state didn't look after them. A person had to come with food for them. They had to come with clothing for them. They had to come with water for them or they would starve or die in prison from the cruel conditions of the prison. They were dependent on people from the outside to come and care for them. And there was a difficulty there because if if you were coming and sharing and caring for a person who was a political prisoner, a religious political prisoner, you're kind of identifying yourself. You're giving yourself up. You're revealing that you too share this belief and that you too are part of this party and that you too are as guilty as the person in prison. So it was very dangerous. To care for those who are in prison, but yet, as an act of worship, we are commanded to go and to care for those who are in hardship, those who are suffering, regardless of what it might cost us. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable about the the the, the, the what's it, Lord, uh, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says to the, the the man, come, and Jesus says, "Come into glory." Gosh, I, I, I murdered that example, didn't I? The sheep and the goats, one, where Jesus is dividing them and he says about the goats, when I was in prison, did not come visit me when I was in heart, to hunger and thirst, didn't feed me when I was naked, didn't clothe me. And they come up to Jesus and say, when, Lord, when, when, did, when? mean they didn't, you didn't. But then he turns to the sheep and says, enter into your reward. And they're like, where? Well, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry and thirsty, you fed me. The act of worship, there is a requirement put upon us as believers that we are to worship God by our actions, not just simply by our attitudes. One of the things I hate as a pastor is when people say to me, you can't see my heart. Yes, I can. (laughs) You don't know why I am on the inside. Yes, I, I can. I can see your life. What you're interested in, what you do, what you say, your actions denote your heart. What a man is on the inside, so he is on the outside. And yes, you can fake it for a time. You can pretend and put a pantomime, a show on. But the truth always comes out when the hardship, when the difficulty, when the time of sacrifice is called for. You will either step up or wither away. Remember the parable of the sewer of the soils? And the, the, Jesus told about the, the, the seed that fell in the hard ground, and the seed that fell upon the, 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 the path, not path, the path, the, the ditch. And the thorns choked it, didn't grow to life. And he said that this was an example of those who received the word with happiness, but then when hardship comes, that was in the stony ground, when hardship comes sacrifice comes their joy their life their passion for christ withers up and dies and it never bears eternal fruit they're shown to be a false convert someone who is a pretend christian beloved you and i are commanded by god to identify and to participate in the care for those who are being mistreated for those who are imprisoned in the worst conditions and situations of their life. And this is an act of worship. This is how you worship God. This is what God requires of you. doesn't it require, I didn't read anywhere there, you can stand with your hand in the air and go, oh, ah. as much as that it sounds wonderful. God doesn't require that. He requires the fruit of a sanctified life. So that was the first part in that how to worship God in a social context. And then the Holy Spirit through the speaker, through the writer to the church of then and to now goes on to how to worship God in your private life. Your private life. And he says here, the marriage is to be honored by all. Marriage is to be honored by all. You're not to take it lightly. As a Christian man, you're not supposed to go and date five or six women before you find the right one. You're not supposed to treat other men's wives as if they're unmarried. To be a flirt. Young ladies, you're not supposed to wander around dressed in such a way as to attract the eye of every man. To be like a bait on a hook. How am I supposed to get a husband if I don't look well? We are to keep that core relationship sacred for us as Christians. And we do this not because it's right, but because God has required it as an act of worship. You are to have a high standard, even if you're married or not married, a high standard of marriage, of relationships. You treat it as a holy and sacred thing. And in doing so, you're worshipping God. The world in which we live today treats marriage and the act of man and woman and family, the nuclear family, as if it's nothing. There's a, an active attack against it. Trying to rub it out, redefine it, reclassify it as something other. But as Christians, that is a core value for us. Father, mother, children, marriage is something sacred and it is a gift from God. God instituted marriage and therefore we hold it high and in doing so we are worshipping God. Here he goes on in talking about how we worship God in our private life. And the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. Here talking about our sexual activities outside marriage, whether with a person or without a person. What we look at on our devices or in the book, what we think of, the purity of our own nature, the standard by which we live, is not just simply to be Holy and prudish and Puritan in our in our in our marriages, but even as as, as singles, even as a young people growing up, or whatever we want to do, we have a holy view on sexuality, and we don't treat other people as a as a gratification to our own satisfaction. We, the Bible says that we are to, uh, we who are men are to see the, the women of our church as mothers and as sisters. Sadly, I have far too many mothers and far too few sisters. People who just want to mummy me all the time, tell me that I need to lose weight and all the rest. We need to guard our thinking and our feeling. When it comes to the people around us to the opposite sex or sexual relationships. And we do this not because it's right, but because it's an act of worship. He goes on then to talk about to keep our lives free from the love of money. That we don't become materialistic, that we don't become the kind of people who live for material gain. And this is the love child sin. It's one of the things that we that we struggle with greatly here in Finland. When in the olden days we used to see when people got married in, in church life before we started this church young people would get married and then they would disappear from church because and you would, I, you would talk to them why are you still coming to the, the meetings? well I'm getting my house in order I'm building my house I don't have time Sunday's the day I build my house and I collect all my stuff and they, their home, their house Their material things became an idol for them; became the thing that they were more most interested in. Their car. Well, I I wash my car on a Sunday. I I would love to come to church, but Sunday just is the best day to wash your car. We need to guard ourselves from the love of money. So it's not just what we do, but it's also what we don't do that's an act of worship. And the, the, the act of guarding your heart against materialism or the, the desire for success as the world sees it, to, to be dressed in the best material, to have the biggest house or the, the, the most richest facilities or whatever, to have a car, a boat, a jet ski, a snowmobile, all those things are okay. But when your heart longs for them, when they become... The object of your ambition, that's when you've strayed into idolatry. That's when you begin to worship at the altar of mammon. Do you remember Jesus said you cannot love money and God, you know, cannot serve two masters, can't live your life for material wealth and possession and to be successful? that you can do all those things to the glory of God. But when it takes precedent over Christ and his people, and again, I can see your relationship to Christ by your relationship to the Church of God, to the community of believers. You tell me that you love Jesus, but you neglect your church life, you neglect your relationship with your brothers and sisters, you're just a meeting going goer, you go to the meeting, but you don't have a relationship with the people in the meeting. That's not love for God. That's just doing rituals and ceremonies. That's just habit. So beloved, we're commanded to keep our lives free from money. And then we're to be satisfied with what we have. To be confident that God will look after us and care for us. And then finally we go into this today's point. How to worship God in a religious context. We looked at our our social life, our private life now, as a religious act. How we worship God in a religious act. Remember in the olden days, they would come and they would offer up a lamb or a goat, or they would give some grain, a sack of grain. They would do something, pour oil out on a stone. There would be some religious act. You would go up and the priest would pray for you, and he would put blood on you. Splash, splash. Wouldn't that be great? Somebody with a big broom splashing you with blood. Wouldn't that be fantastic in your worship? Coming home every Sunday or there they came home Saturday. You come home from church, you'd be covered in blood because he would splash you with blood. Aren't we grateful that we don't have that today? Um, and so here in, in verse 7, he begins to, treat, to, to, to discuss how we worship Christ in spirit and in truth. Jesus told us that we would be a people who worship in spirit and truth. But how do we do that? Is it speaking in some unknown foreign language? Like the the so-called gift of tongues? Should have bought a Honda. Those kind of things. No. It is... In the way we live our lives to the glory of God. And he begins here, remember your leaders who have spoken the word of God to you. Now this is very interesting. The word remember is is in present tense. Keep on remembering. Have them constantly in your mind. Always before your eyes. Let them be as a living example. But also this verse hints that those who were their leaders are now gone. They're dead. They're absent from them. And so he's even though there is an absence of the individual, they're out of sight and perhaps out of mind, the Holy Spirit, the writer, is encouraging them, remember those who first brought the word of God to you. Those who of men from time past, how they lived their lives. The first generation of Jewish Christians who hung out with Jesus who had spent time with Jesus and maybe have been imprisoned or martyred or been removed or they've dispersed, they've fled to other countries and they're no longer there. But the writer is commanding them, remember them. Remember them. And this is one of the reasons why I always think it's very important for us as Christians to read the biographies of Christians of times gone by. Christians from 500 years ago from a thousand years ago. How did they live their lives? And he says here, as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, I like that, carefully observe in my Bible, analyze, as you pull apart, as you look in and make, how, how does this work? What did they do? When they were faced with this circumstance, what did they do? What was their response? Did they riot? Yeah! Did they go into opposition against the government and kill kings and queens and all this? No! We see that they endured. The Christian people of the past endured. And therefore, we are to remember them and to examine. And then it says to imitate their life. We're to remember them. We're to examine them. And we're to imitate them as they did so must we. As they live, so must we. Not times change, as things were in the Reformation times. We're, we live in a different world today. We have cars and modern conveniences, and not But the principles of life are still the same. We, we still interact with human beings, and human beings haven't changed. Our attitudes and our, 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 our worldview may have changed, but The basic premise of how we live our lives all of us get up in the morning, all of us have breakfast, all of us go to work at some doing something, all of us are active and have relationships, all of us are a part of a community, all of us are from a country, all of us have to pay taxes. There are common threads that hold us together. All of us face hardship. All of us face difficulty. <coughs> when we examine how the successful, recognized Christian leaders are, in the past responded, we too can then emulate them. The Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that has happened will happen again. Every circumstance, every situation that you go through, someone has gone through it before. There is nothing new under the sun. God is not shocked by anything that happens to you in your life. He's like, well, I've never seen that before. Oh my goodness. There's a little bit of pride in us that we say, well, you know what? Well, there was that one time, God, when I did this. And I'm sure you've never seen anyone like that before. I can just imagine going, God saying, let me tell you, son, seen it all, seen it all. God is never shocked or surprised by the circumstances of our lives and that there is an opportunity for us to learn from the people of the past. So, beloved, as an act of our worship to God, we are not simply just to remember them. And I'm not talking about venerating, making saints out of them. I'm not talking about recognizing them as holy people and having their statues on either side of me. Calvin, Luther, and we don't do that. But we remember how they lived their lives as they sought to glorify God and as they faced circumstances as Christian leaders, as Christian examples. And therefore, we copy how they behaved for the reasons why they did these things. And in doing so, we worship God. It goes on in verse 8. And verse 8 was always a a troublesome verse for me because it just seems like it's so out of place. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This sort of place, but the writer is telling us that listen, Jesus never changes. It's like from James chapter one I think verse seventeen, we're, we're talking about God the Father who gives good gifts, and He's unchanging, doesn't shift or change like flickering lights. He's constant, immutable, unchange, unchanging, unchanging. Was going to say unchangeable unchanging. And so Jesus Christ has been the same from the very beginning, from eternity past, before the creation of the world, because he is God. He has never changed. He is immutable in his nature, in his personality. And therefore, when we face circumstances, his teaching is suitable for everything. He doesn't change how he desires for us to worship. He doesn't come up with a new thing. This week, everyone, I would like everyone to wear something red. Something red would be wonderful. I would feel very worshipped if we all wore something red. Or on Fridays, no one's allowed to eat meat. You all have to eat fish. You all giggle at that, but that's what the Roman Catholics said, didn't they? The Roman Catholics said, God requires that people eat fish on a Friday so that he is worshipped. So everyone has to eat fish fingers on a Friday to worship. We think that's hilariously funny. At least I do. But that was the requirement. But we see in the Old Testament, we see the record of the Bible. Jesus nowhere in the Bible requires people to eat fish on a Friday. So why would we add it to how we worship? Well, we don't. We understand as Jesus was yesterday, so he is today and so he will always be. And how we are to worship him never changes. It is by spirit, it is by the method of spirit and in truth, with our hearts, and with integrity, how we live our lives, not in hypocrisy. <coughs> Yesterday morning, we had our men's Bible study at Fred's house and Daniel was taking it and Daniel was talking from Matthew chapter 6 about prayer and he, he talked about how Jesus said, when you pray, do not pray like that." Hypocrites who love to stand in street corners. And the word hypocrite, Daniel told us, was the word for actor, false face, one playing a role, one who is outward something but inwardly something else. He used Harrison Ford. He called him, what was it? He called him George, George, George Floyd Harrison. or George Harrison. I was like, that's somebody else. He wasn't in Star Wars. I said we see him in these roles and he, he plays this exciting um, Han Solo or, or Indiana Jones. And he's this exciting character on the screen. But if you ever see a real life interview with Harrison Ford, he, he talks very much like this. He's got a very quiet voice and he's very unexciting. He's a very boring man, very kind of ordinary. And so we see that there is a, a, a difference between the role that he plays and the person that he is. And sadly that in Christian life, we all too often can become like that. All too often, we are publicly one thing, but internally a different. We come to church, we put our church face on. How are you? I'm very well today, thank you very much. We put our plastic smiles on. Oh, great, fantastic, life is great. But yet, inwardly, there's an, there's an emptiness there. There's a difficulty and there's a difference. And the Bible says that we should not be so. That we should be different. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How he requires us to worship him should be constant in spirit and in truth. From our hearts and with integrity. Not a false face for people to look at you. And then he goes on, of course. Do not be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings where it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations. And for us, it's a bit strange because, you know, we don't have food regulations, but if we were Roman Catholics or some other Christian religion, we would have food things, you know, like in the olden days, they had Lent, you know, like a fast last of bulldog and those things, when they put the little red dot on their heads, and they had a time of fasting where we were encouraged to be holy. What was happening in this context was, there was, a, it's called the cult of food. One of the greatest ways that Jews used to worship was having the, um, the, the Passover meal together. Do you know the Passover meal when they would have the, the lamb butchered and then they would barbecue the lamb and they'd have all their hummus and all the other dips and their breads and they'd have this ritual meal and everyone would be dressed and they'd have their overcoats on and they would be looking as if they are ready to have their bags packed and looked as if they were going to go out on a journey. And they would have this ritual, this meal. And in doing so, the ritual of the Passover meal it became like an act of worship and some sort of like interaction with God. And it transcended a remembrance and became some sort of people being nourished by this. It was a transference of grace through the meal. And here, the writer is telling them, don't get sidetracked by these various kinds. These, you know, The word is like, um, unnumberable. I think that's a word. Without number, various kinds. Meaning that there are so many you could even count them. With every imagination, there comes a new crazy teaching. Somebody who has discovered something new. And he said, "Don't get distracted by those kind of crazy, fantastic, new, trendy teachings." Sadly, we see that a lot in Christianity. Trends come and trends go. When we were in the charismatic life, that you would see the, the the trends of speaking in tongues, miracles, prophecies, and these things would rotate. In normal church life, you see. Um, uh, biblical manhood, biblical, biblical family, you know, uh, trends come around. But for you and I, we, as good Protestants that we are, good people from a Lutheran or Calvinistic background, we don't really have this kind of ritualized meal. We don't have this kind of grace-giving nourishment. We don't, you know... When we celebrate Christmas, none of us think that you know, God is meeting with us. We're all just interested in the ham and the loader. You know, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, we don't have a religious connotation. That when we celebrate Easter, Pask, there isn't that. There isn't a, a religious element to those kind of things as there was for the Jews. But for us as Christians, we we kind of can see we have one special food thing that we do. And it is the taking of the Lord's Supper. Communion. And that it's, there is the teaching amongst Roman Catholics and some Lutherans that Jesus is present there. Among the Roman Catholics, they believe that Jesus is in the little cracker, wafer, biscuit, whole everything. Everything. All his hair, all his fingernails, all his bones, all his blood, all his flesh is contained in that little Eucharist, that little biscuit. And in the wine that they pour, they believe that all of his blood is in that. It isn't a representation. It is the body. It is the blood. It transforms and becomes something new. They called a miracle. And you're like, but this looks like a biscuit and that looks like blood. Ah, you're not seeing with the eye of faith. It's real. Now we would disagree with that because we know it's not a transformation. And the Lutherans (laughs) Lutherans believe that when they take the Lord's Supper, the ghost of Jesus, not the body, but the ghost of Jesus, his spirit. Comes down and is in the biscuit and is in the wine. And so you're drinking the spirit of Jesus, the essence. And in doing so, both the actions from the Roman Catholic Church and from the Lutheran Church make you more Christian. They make you more holy. It is a transference of grace from God to you. He is giving you more holiness. Now we reject that. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It wasn't a transference of grace or merit. It wasn't to make you more holy. The writer here says that it's by grace. We must be established by grace. Understanding that what God has done for us, he has done because he loves us. Grace is love that is undeserved. I love you even though you're a dirty, rotten sinner. I care for you and I'm committed to you even though many times you hate me and disappoint me I still am 100% committed to you. That is the grace by which we as Christians are established. By by which we are built up in our lives that, that allows us to worship him not by the teaching of the Lord's supper. You come here on a Sunday, Is the first Sunday of the month I think it is I'm never quite sure. And we take It's not making you a better Christian. It's not making you more holy. It is your declaration this is what Jesus has done for me. He died that I might be set free from my sin, that I might be born again, that His Spirit might live within me. It is your declaration that you share life together with Him. And you do it so with rejoicing. So beloved, we are not those who are led astray by various kinds of doctrines and teachings that are the imaginations of men. We hold to what the book says as an act of our worship to God. Remembering that it's by grace that we are established, not by various kinds of external. Remember Jesus said that what a man takes into his body gets processed by his body and then is released. These things, external things can make you holy. It is gone by his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you able to say that he has transformed you and changed you and given you this new life? That you're not one who is dependent on external sources to keep your Christian life afloat and going? Are you one who is able to say I worship in spirit and truth from the heart with integrity that my life is in step with what the Bible says? Are you one of those whom the Bible says is tossed here and through like a a boat without an anchor on on the waves driven by any kind of wind, doctrine, imagination of man? Let Christ be your anchor. Hold fast to him. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we would ask you to help us. Lord, so often our lives become a play, a show, a falsehood. So often, Lord, we're more concerned about the external, not the internal. We would ask you, O God, to help us to walk in your ways and to keep your requirements. But Lord, from the heart, we are dependent upon you. We need you in every moment of our life. Please, Holy Spirit, have your way within us. and Allow us, help us to see Jesus and to walk in him and to rejoice in him. To Lord, live our lives in such a worshipful way that he is seen to be our God. That we wouldn't compromise and camouflage our faith. Lord, help us not to be distracted and pulled aside by various kinds of teachings and distractions. Help us, Lord, not to lean on ceremony and symbols, but to know the real thing. Lord, we desire Jesus and the reality that comes through him. That we might avoid hell. That we might never see your angry face. That, Lord, when you come or we die, that when we step into eternity future, that, Lord, we might be together with you as a family, knowing your, your great love and not your terrible wrath. Oh, Father, we desire for you to be happy and for you to be glorified. Remember us, O Lord, we pray. We ask this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.